All right, good morning, familia. Can you please stand for the reading of God's word? We're going to be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. If you are with me, can you please say amen? amen. Verse 12. I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them to a prostitute or with a prostitute? Never. Verse 16. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in, in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, who you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Lord, I pray that you speak to us this morning. As always, Lord, we rely on the power of your word, not on the words of a preacher, but in the power of your word. And I pray, Lord, that you reveal the secrets of our hearts that allow us to see what we need to see. But that once we do that, we, you take us to Jesus. You take us to the cross, and you leave us there. We pray for all of this in the name of Jesus, and we all say, Amen. you may be seated. So, uh, if you are visiting for the first time, um, first I want to welcome you, and I want to say that you, came, that you chose the perfect Sunday to come to church. <laughs> because we're going to be talking about lust, and everyone loves to talk about that subject. Today is part of four of this seven-week series we have, we have called, uh, see, I'm, I'm just, the topic, man. <laughs> this seven-part series is called Weapons of Self-Destruction, in which we're going through this list of sins known as the deadly sins. So far, we have talked about pride and envy and anger, and today we're talking about this very important subject, which is the subject, subject of lust. And the way I want to approach the topic is uh, through, the, to, through a biblical, uh, biblical theology perspective, meaning that what I want us to do is to talk about this subject under four headings, uh, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. For creation, we're going to talk about God's design for sex or intimacy, whichever word you find less aggressive. Uh, because if we don't understand God's original design, we don't understand why lust is such a big issue. Under the fall, we're going to talk about the distortion, which is lust, the distortion of, of sex, 
Number three, uh, we're going to talk about the redemption, what Jesus came to do when he went to the cross. How is it that God deals with this issue in our hearts? And number four, restoration, which is the future. And what I want you to see is that sexual uh, pleasures, sexual desires, they point to something. And we got to pay attention to that. So creation, design, fall, distortion, redemption, the cross, and restoration, the future. Let's go with the first point, the creation, God's design for intimacy or sex. And once again, the reason why I want to start with that is because um, you, we don't understand what lust is unless we understand what God had in mind when he created sex or intimacy. Um, if we don't understand that part, if we don't believe in that part, uh, lust it could be anything you want. But that's not the idea. The idea is that we gotta, we got to pay attention to what God says. So, so the way I could explain it is like this. If, uh, when someone is being trained to learn how to recognize what a real bill, let's say a $100 bill, looks like, um, this person has to first be training in spending hours and hours and hours looking and learning and observing a real bill. Memorizing what a real bill looks like. Once this person understands and knows exactly how a real $100 bill looks like, then and only then, they introduce this person to a false bill. And now he can understand and see why is it that a false bill is a false bill. Well, it's the same thing with the topic that we're talking about today. We start where the Bible starts. And this is the premise that all sexual desires, the desire for sexual intimacy was God's idea. Therefore, it is a good thing. That's the premise of the whole thing. And I think that's what Paul has in mind when he says what he says in verse 13. Look at the second part of verse 13. Paul, the writer of this letter, says, The body, however... Is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. So let me give you a little bit of context there. Paul is writing to a group of people that have this uh, twisted understanding that if they are Christians, if they have been forgiven and accepted um, by God through Jesus, they get to do whatever they want with their body. That's the context. And Paul says to them, no, 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 hold on a second. That's not how this works. You might be a Christian. You might be forgiven. You might be accepted. But if that doesn't mean that you get to do whatever you want with your body. Actually, his argument is really simple. Your body belongs to God, and God is the Lord of your body. You are called to use your body the way God tells you to use your body. Now, this is the implication, that if the body belongs to God, and God is the Lord of your body, then whenever we, we use our body in the proper way, in the right context, then that's always a good thing. In other words, if your body is good to God, then whatever you do, use, however you use your body, if it's within the proper context, it's a good thing including intimacy, including sex. Now, he makes the point even more clear in verse 16. 
Because he quotes Genesis chapter 2, 24. Look at what, what he says. For it is said, the two will become one flesh. Once again, he's there quoting Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And that verse clearly states that marriage is between one man and one woman. And that within the context of that marriage, when they get together, when they, they are united, they become one both spiritually and physically. Actually, it is because of Genesis chapter 1 and 2 that we uh, understand how God views intimacy or how God views, views sex. Actually, we know because of that verse that when Adam and Eve come together, and the Bible says that Adam knew Eve, God was present. God did not turn around to give them, to give them their privacy. God did not cover his eyes when they're getting together. God was there celebrating with them because sex or intimacy is God's idea. Actually, another argument that I could make is that because Genesis chapter 2, which is where we see this verse quoted by Paul, um, Genesis chapter 2 comes before Genesis chapter 3, right? Simple math. <laughs> Genesis chapter 3 is when the fall comes in, right? Is when sin comes into the world. But because God created sex or intimacy in Genesis chapter 2 and, fall and, and sin is not present, we know by definition then that sex or intimacy in the context of marriage between one man and one woman, it's a good thing. It's not shameful. It's not part of the fall. It's all right to talk about it at church, basically. <laughs> Actually, we know because of Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, the purpose for sex and the purpose for intimacy within the context of marriage. And I could give you three. There's more, but I could give you three. I could only give you three because I, I think that's the only thing you can handle today. See, Genesis 1, verse 28 says that one of the purposes for sex or intimacy is procreation, right? It's to have babies. There's no other way to have babies. Number two, because of Genesis chapter 2, we know that another purpose for sex or intimacy, intimacy is the consummation of marriage. It's when you could actually say that the two, the two people become one, Right? There's another one that I think that people tend to forget. And it comes from the same text, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Is that another purpose for sex or intimacy is mutual pleasure and delight. Actually, the way I read it in the scripture, within the context of marriage between one man and one woman, sex or intimacy is a way in which you serve your spouse. It's a way to show affection to your spouse. It's not about me, it's about my wife. It's not about you, it's about your spouse. It's mutual pleasure and delight. It's a way to serve your spouse. It's a way to show affection. Now, the Bible is full of examples that for obvious reasons, I'm not going to read here. But when you pay attention to that topic all throughout Scripture... There are so, uh, so many graphic and descriptive descriptions of intimacy that everyone in this room will feel completely uncomfortable. <laughs> so, for example, if you want to read that at home, <laughs> Proverbs chapter 5, 
I mean, I, I, I should, yep, you got to read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 talks about a man and a woman and why they shouldn't deny one another. But then I think that the most graphic book in the Bible is Songs of Songs, which I think that many of the scholars feel so uncomfortable translating the, passage, the passages the way they are is because they are extremely graphic. That book is not PG. It's not PG-13. It's more like a holy Raider R. <laughs> extremely graphic. But it describes a couple within the context of marriage. Like, if you really pay attention to that, you would say, like, what? That's in the Bible? Yeah, that's in the Bible. And if you struggle with it, maybe that's a reflection of what happens in your heart. Sex and intimacy in the proper order, within the right context between a man and a woman, it's God's idea. It's a good thing. That's the creation. That's the design. The problem, the question is, what went wrong? Well, point number two, the fall. In the fall, we find the distortion of sex or the distortion of intimacy. And like everything else in creation, the moment sense enters the world, everything that is good, everything that is beautiful, everything that is perfect changes automatically. The moment sense entered the world, sex and intimacy, which was created by God as something pure and good within the context of marriage, it becomes something that many people misuse. And we either idolize it and abuse it, or it becomes something that we denigrate and despise. Let me say that again. Because of sin, many people then, what we have done with sex and intimacy, is either they idolize it and abuse it, or they denigrate it and despise it. And that's where we get the word lust. In other words, lust is a distortion of God's original design for sex. Lust is, is a distortion of God's original design for sex. And that's what Paul in this text has in mind when he uses the phrase sexual immorality. And if you notice, he uses the same phrase twice. You can read it in verse 13. He says, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And then again in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. What is interesting about that phrase is that in the original is the word pornea, which is where we get, where we get the word pornography, which means all kinds of sexual distortions. Uh, so sexual distortion will be uh, fornication, which is the biblical word, you know, having sex before marriage, right? Or adultery, having intimacy with someone that is not your spouse. Or even, uh, it's a description of any sexual sin, like pornography or masturbation or homosexuality or any of those things. So the word pornea describes all of those things. So if someone thinks that he's not struggling with lust because he's not sleeping with someone that is not your spouse, you got to look at the definition of what the lust implies, right? What I want to show you, though, is that there are four things. So yeah, four, there are four things that Paul uh, four phrases here that Paul uses to describe why is it that lust is such an awful thing and dangerous thing. Let me give you the first one. Lust, in this text, is a disordered desire. And I get that from verse 13. He says, you say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. 
And what Paul is doing here is using a phrase that these people are using to justify their sexual immorality. In a way, what they're saying is something like this. Well, sex is just sex. It's like eating food. It's an appetite. It's meaningless. Let's not worry about it. And what Paul is trying to do here is to correct their thinking. Because of what we saw before and the Bible says about sex or intimacy, we know that sex and intimacy is not, is not an appetite. It's a, it's a disordered desire. It elevates sexual pleasure so and so much that it becomes something that we need and needs to be satisfied. You know what the problem is with that? That then single people will struggle forever. That's the problem. Or it's a disordered, uh, disordered desire because it lowers, or, uh, it takes the value of sex so, and makes it so and so low that it's just like an appetite. Food. And Paul says that's not the way it is. That's not what sex or intimacy is. Don't use it that way. That's basically what he's saying. Number two. Paul says here in the text that lust is a hedonistic desire. Verse 12 says, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I spent a lot of time thinking about that one there. Because the word hedonistic, I think, is the best word to describe someone that is so self-centered, so selfish, so obsessed with self-indulgence, so desperate for pleasure-seeking that the only person he or she cares about is him or herself. That's, that's the word hedonistic there. And when it comes to sex or intimacy, when that's the struggle, that is no longer about pro uh, procreation or the consummation of marriage. It's no longer about mutual pleasure and delight. And it's no longer... Uh, anything about serving your spouse, but it becomes a selfish, self-centered, egocentric thing that turns people into instruments of pleasure. That's the problem with lust. And that's why Paul says that not everything is beneficial. Now, the word beneficial there um, is talking about community. It's not just that it's not beneficial for you as an individual, but it's not beneficial for the community. And the reason why I argue that that's what he has in mind is because we are reading 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But before 1 Corinthians chapter 6, there's another chapter that we call 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul here is reprimanding sexual immorality in the church. It affects the church. And when you go one more chapter after 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is calling married couples to have sexual purity. So when you see it in the right context, you know that the word beneficial here has community in mind. Lust has the ability not only to affect you, but to affect the people that you love, to affect the people that surrounds you. It doesn't matter what you do by yourself when nobody else is seeing, the effects of lust affects everyone. Actually, let me give you some um, two examples from secular thinkers. Every time I think about secular thinkers, I say something like this. If they are seeing the same thing that the Bible talks about, we have to pay attention to them. 
So this comes from, a, from an article written by a psychologist, a clinical psychologist. Um, the name of the article is The Downside of Cohabitating Before Marriage. People living together before they get married, right? Um, and they say that, that usually the thinking is, well, I have to live with someone before I get married um, just to see uh, if we are compatible. You know what? If you have been married for more than a year, you know that that word doesn't exist. <laughs> I hate that word. It, that concept doesn't exist. You became compatible as you go. So it's foolish to think that you're going to be able to check if someone is compatible to you before you get married. What this psychologist is arguing is that what, that what that does, it turns this relationship into a consumer relationship. Meaning, I'm going to be with you, I'm going to use you, but if something better shows up, I got permission to go. It's an awful way. Awful way to start a relationship. Now, when it comes to sex or intimacy, in a consumer relationship, people want the physical part of a person, but they don't want the person. Or people want the benefits of marriage without the commitment of marriage. Or they want the pleasures of marriage without the commitment of marriage. Or they use people, someone could use another person until something better, quote unquote, comes along. It's an awful thing. It's an awful thing. Well, there's another uh, source, and this one is a book called Primarial Sex in America. And it's a couple of sociologists, and they talk about the effects of pornography. Not just for you, but for other people. And let me give you three things that we have from that book. He says that people who use pornography has, uh, have crushingly unrealistic expectations regarding physical appearance and sexual performance. You know what that means? When they get with somebody, they have this idea of what their body's supposed to look like and what they're supposed to do in intimacy, which is crazy. Second thing that they talk about is that people that are engaged, engaged with pornography, especially males, they got a significant number. Oh, they, uh, the pornography de diminishes tolerance toward difficulties in relationships. Basically, what that means is that people that are hooked on pornography, uh, they don't know how to deal with, with the complications of a relationship. Now, if you have been married for more than two weeks, you know that marriage is complicated. So the result of that is that people are not getting married. And they rather have casual relationships. And the third consequence, they said in this book, Secular Thinkers, is that you expect other people to accommodate to what you want in sexual behavior and appearance. You know what that does to a woman in a specific? Lust is a this hedonistic desire that it dehumanizes us and it dehumanizes other people. Let me give you another one. Lust is an enslaving desire. This comes from verse 12. I have the right to do anything, Paul says. And once again, he's using the, a phrase that they're using. But I, will not, but I will not be mastered by anything. 
And what Paul is saying here is that lust has the ability and the potential to control you, to become your master, to overpower you. That's part of the reason why the Bible uses the same word for lust that it uses for the word greed. Did you know that? Both, both things, both lust and greed, uh, share something. They have something in common. In basically what that means is that it's, it's an idol. And if you understand how idols work, you know that idols, what they do is they want to control you. And they want to control you by demanding more of you. And when, they, when you surrender to that demand, you become a slave. And your idols uh, promise you things. And you surrender to your idols, and they never deliver what they promised. And what happened now is that you, got, you have to go back and get more from them. It's almost an, it's, it's like an addiction. It's a description of an addiction. Lust is, is an enslaving desire. And then the last one, Paul says here that lust is a destructive desire. Verse 18, all other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. That's why it's called a weapon of self-destruction. Anything that goes against the original design leads to self-destruction. Once again, it dehumanizes you and it dehumanizes other people. That's part of the reason why I struggle that we live in a culture that elevates lust and celebrates lust. That's part of the reason why I think that the church really got to pay attention to this. That's part of the reason why I think that we should never assume that no one is struggling with this. That's part of the reason why I know that every single one of us, especially if you're a man for some reason, you got to be careful with this. Because this is not, this is not, this is destructive. It, it is destructive. It, destroy, it destructs people all the time. It destructs marriages. It destructs relationships. It's a disordered desire. It's a hedonistic desire. It is an enslaving desire. And it's a destructive desire. Either we kill lust or lust is going to kill us. Now the question is this. What is that God did then to help us with this? What is it that God offers to help us fight against this? Well, this is point number three. The redemption. Of course, the cross of Jesus Christ. This is the thing we lust. That is one of those things that you cannot kill by simply applying practical things. It doesn't work that way. Practical things are good and necessary. Accountability is necessary. You blocking things in the computer is necessary. You're not looking at certain things is necessary. You're not having conversations about things about this is necessary. All those things are good. Those are good restrictions, but they don't have the power to change your heart. So let me use an illustration that is not even here, just to make my point. 
Um, so think of a man that, uh, that is struggling with lust, right? And he thinks, so, so he goes to work and he sees all these women at work and he realizes that his eyes is what is causing him to sin. So he goes home and fixes the problem, gets him out. Right? The following day he goes back to work again. And now he can't see anything, but he realizes that he can st- still smell the perfume of people in, in his surroundings. He says, well, this is what is causing my problems. So he goes home and pff, fix the problem. Right? Now he's breathing through his mouth, and he cannot see or smell. Right? And the following day, he goes back to work, and as he's walking around, he just uh, kind of um, touches a person, and as he's walking around, he says, oh, the problem is my arms. He goes home, pff, fix the problem. Well, now he can see, he can smell, he's breathing through his mouth, which is terrible, right? And he can move, he doesn't have arms. So he, the following day he goes back home and he realizes that the problem is that he's going to work. <laughs> so not only he becomes lazy, he stays at home. And when he's at home, he realizes that he still thinks and embraces lust in his heart. This is the problem with lust is that it's a desire. And you cannot fix desires simply by putting restrictions. You can only overpower a desire with a stronger desire. And that's what Paul does here. He's going to show us right now what the power, what's the power to change and what's the motivation to run away from lust. What is the power that we need to change and what is the motivation to run away from lust? So I'm going to go quick with this because the illustration I just gave you was not part of my notes. <laughs> In verse 15, he says this. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? And he says, never. And Paul here is talking about our union with Christ. Look at how he's dealing with their hearts. He reminds them of their union with Christ. He says, you are one with Jesus. You are members of Christ. Meaning that if you are members of Christ, when God sees you, he sees you through his son. And that when he sees you through his son, he loves you as much as he loves his son. Actually, in verse 9, we didn't read this, but in verse 9, he's calling us to die to sexual immorality. But look at the power to die to sexual immorality. He says, you have been washed, meaning you have been forgiven. You have been sanctified, means you have been separated for Jesus. You have been justified, meaning you have been accepted and declared innocent. That's all verse 11. In other words, the power to change comes from when you know that who you are in Jesus and who you are to God in Jesus. That's your identity. That's the power to change. But Paul doesn't stop there. Because then in verse 17, he says this. But whoever is united, look at that word again, with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Look at the power and look at, look at what he does. Therefore, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Now look at verse 19. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have received from God, you are not your own. This is the beautiful thing, what Paul is doing here. Not only if he first gives you your identity, but then he tells you what the power, where the power comes from in order for you to change. 
And it's the power of the Holy Spirit living in you, sent by God to you. You know, it's interesting when you think about the Holy Spirit living inside a person. Is that Paul says in Romans chapter, chapter 8, that the Spirit that lives in us is the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. That's an amazing thing. The power to change is not about you. The power to change is when you realize and understand who you are in Jesus. The power to change comes when you know who you are, who you have inside of you. The Holy Spirit, the one that affects your will. The one that affects and influences your will. He's the one that helps you run. You know, it's interesting that flee, that verse in 18, flee from sexual morality. I think that Paul is thinking of Joseph. Actually, many scholars say that what Paul is thinking of is Joseph. You know, when Joseph is being tempted, and this super beautiful woman is wanting, she wants to be with him, and he runs like a holy coward. Because that's what holy cowards do. They run. They flee from sexual immorality. Now, that's the power. But look at the motivation. Verse 20. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. The motivation to kill are lost. As many times as it is required, because we are going to struggle, many of us are going to struggle with this until Jesus returns, is when we know and we remember the, how expensive our union with Christ was. You were bought with a price. The price that Jesus paid. He paid the price when he went to the cross. He paid the price when he took the shame of our, that our lust deserves. He paid the price when he, the Holy One, takes the place of the lustful one. He paid the price when he, the selfless one, takes the place of the selfish one. He pays the price when he, the free one, becomes a slave in order to give freedom to the slaved ones. If you pay attention to that, you will be able to realize that the cross is actually the ultimate expression of intimacy. Because there at the cross, Jesus serves us. And he shows us that he's our true pleasure and our true delight. There at the cross is when Jesus makes you his own. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Honor God with your body. And number four, restoration, the future. And this is what I want you to see. That all of our sexual desires, all these things that we want, are like appetizers. And they're pointing for what is yet to come. See, we want, to, we want intimacy. We want to feel close to someone, close enough that we feel them here. And those desires are just appetizers. Appetizers for what is yet to come. When Jesus returns and fulfills all of our longings, all of our hearts. You know how you fight, uh, envy I was going to say, you know how you fight lust? Remember. Union with Christ, Holy Spirit, Bought with a price, you are now your own, and the best is yet to come. Amen?
All right, can you please stand? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that you have been giving us to talk about these important subjects. We thank you, Lord, because you called us not only, uh, not, not just to know that how much we struggle with things like this, Lord, but to know that there was an original design behind all of that and to know that there is power in the cross, in the redemption, through the Holy Spirit to die to things like this. And I pray, Lord, that you give us freedom. And I pray, Lord, that you teach us how to flee and that you help us run. Because at the end of the day, we were bought with a price. We are to honor you with our bodies. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And we all say? Amen. Amen.